So he got me thinking a few years ago on this concept of, you know, I got this five-year life plan. He's like, well, why take five years? You know, why not think about that fifth year and how you do that next year? Just that shift in thinking in my brain caused me to do things that I was like, well, yeah, now why don't I just hire people to handle all this stuff? And, you know, that'll allow me to do this, this, and this. And it's just, you know, like light speed. Hi, you're listening to Ready to Scale, the second season of That Really Happened. This season is focused on APS of real estate, asset, process, and strategy. Each guest on the show will reveal the assets they invest in and why they chose to do so. From multifamily to industrial, self-storage, mobile home parks, and more. Then, they'll uncover the processes, tools, and systems they've used to build multi-million dollar businesses. And finally, they'll uncover new, unique, and exciting strategies to invest in real estate, from co-working to buy and hold, fix and flips, co-living, and much, much more. Now let's get the show started. Hey guys, welcome to Ready to Scale. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host, broadcasting from sunny California. When I'm not behind the mic, I buy multifamily properties with passive investors who partner with me on my deals. So this month, I'm giving away a property tour guide. This document will walk you through the process of touring a property what to look for, and what to ask when you tour an apartment building. You can find the guide at www.elliepearlman.com slash resources. If you enjoy the podcast, please take a minute to rate us and don't forget to like and follow along with me on social media as well. All right. My guest on today's show is John Bagdazarian. He's the founder and CEO of Promenas. Promenas works exclusively with accredited investors on commercial developments, including condominiums, hotels, and office space. In addition, John also acquires and sells office space and industrial properties. His firm serves nearly 400 investors, and he has a new book recently out called do the work once, get paid forever. How smart people invest in real estate. And I actually have this book. So if you're interested, this is the book. All right. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you, Ellie. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, absolutely. So can you tell the listeners a little bit about you and how you got started in real estate? Yeah, sure. I graduated from college in the early 90s now, I guess so quite a while ago. Came back to my hometown, Ann Arbor, and a series of things led me to a job selling real estate for a developer as an on-site salesperson selling condominiums in a golf course community. And so that really was what kind of got me in the real estate game. And I got my residential real estate license and then went out on my own and did that for a number of years and then started buying single family homes as rental properties. I did, my first few deals were zero down deals because I didn't have any money. I had to start at zero and those were interesting in and of themselves. But eventually I got into, I got my CCIM designation, started doing commercial brokerage, starting to do some commercial development. And then really in 2000 seven was the first time I really took on outside investors and started syndicating deals. And it's grown from seven investors to now around 400 active and thousands on the potential investor list. Nice. That's very impressive.
So I, you know, I want to start talking about the asset. And usually when I have guests on the show, they invest in one, maybe two assets, but you basically invest in all kinds of, you know, asset classes from condominiums to multifamilies, hotels, office space. Do you have, you know, is one of those assets your favorite or preferred assets that you like to work with more than others? Well, the ones I like the best are the ones that make the money. So, (laughs) but no, to be honest with you, we don't really consider ourselves geographically driven or even asset specifically driven, you know, by asset class. We're very opportunistic in, in how we roll. So from 2009 all the way through 2016, we were buying existing industrial buildings, multi-tenant office buildings, single-tenant office buildings throughout southeastern Michigan just because we could buy them at 11 cap rates and we knew they were a steal and they were very, very low risk in our minds. So we were taking advantage of that as we've kind of rolled out of that cycle and now we can't find anything to buy at, you know, a seven cap even, you know, so, and we, we really wouldn't buy at that level because it, just doesn't have enough margin for error on, on our front. You know, a larger REIT might be able to buy into that cycle, but we're actually selling out of a lot of those assets right now. And we're focused on ground up development because again, we can get double digit high team returns for our investors in ground up development in very specific areas in very specific asset classes. So now we're focused on, I guess we have we have a hotel. We have some high-end condominium projects, one in Sarasota, two in Denver. We have four in Nashville now. We have two projects in Washington, D.C. One's a value-add conversion to a multifamily, taking a building and converted it into a, not multifamily, but an apartment, actually all really studios for kind of a student housing thing. So there's, there's a value-add component and there's ground-up development, and we, we do both. But we're not technically the developer of record anymore. We're really morphed into a straight private equity firm, all real estate. So we get developers all over the country submitting us you know, their, their information. We boil it down into our sheet and do another layer of due diligence over the top. And then we submit a term sheet to them, which is really very, very investor friendly is what I would say. But if the deal works out, it also gets the developer way more money than they typically would under a general GPLP type structure, which is what is what's usually sent to us is the general partner, limited partner type structure. And we rewrite that into more of what we call a peri passu basis where all equities treated equally. But what ends up happening is if the deal works out well, a lot more money flows to the developer side than than potentially would have in other circumstances. If the deal doesn't go well, the investors are are the first ones to get their money back and the first ones to get a very good preferred rate of return on their equity. So we're here really to, you know, we're we're now in the middle. Since I've done development myself ground up, we've really positioned ourselves as saying, well, we have the experience and we have the track record. So we can make money for the small guy. Most of our investors, while they're accredited, I wouldn't call them all highly sophisticated. You know, we have a lot of full-time professionals, small business owners, running restaurants, energy traders, techie types that have uh, cashed in on 
everything from Uber, Google, Spotify. When I think of some of my investors and the, the, the loot they've made, we've had people that have made a lot of money in cryptocurrencies, believe it or not, and they want to take some of that off and put it into some real bricks and mortar. So what we do is we say, hey, you know, I've spent my whole life doing this. I can take my experience and put my money in these deals and people can come alongside me and get the returns that we're generating as, as well. And then at the same time, it takes me away from going to township meetings and zoning boards of appeals and doing the, I guess what I call the nose to the grindstone or head being beat against a brick wall is what I would equate it to in some municipalities, but some are more friendly than others. So, but we don't typically get involved in the development side. We come in when the project's shovel ready. So basically when it comes to, and that's a good segue to the second part of, you know, the, the interview, when we're talking about a strategy development, you're getting involved after all the permits have been provided when the site is ready to go. Is this, is this where you're getting involved? Typically, yes. There are occasions, like right now, we had a piece of property that was brought to us in Nashville and it had to close in a couple of weeks. And, you know, so we put $6 million together for that very quickly and closed on it. But that's because we know that market very well. It's a buy right zoning there. So we know what we can get on the site. And we don't typically do that. We typically come in, like, like you said, when it's shovel ready, the permits are in place, the construction loans there, there's a GMP contract, you know, so we feel like, and, and we've done a whole nother layer of due diligence on it. I mean, background checks on sponsors who sold the property and we go pretty deep on the due diligence. So can you walk me through the average kind of life cycle of investing in a development site? Yeah. So some of them are pretty short. We have like our high rise in Sarasota, that one, it's an 18 story, $120 million project or something crazy like that. But the time frame on it was really only about 20 months start to finish because I mean, literally they were putting a shovel in the ground the day our money went in. So the turn on that is for the investors is going to be under two years. They also had over 50% of the project pre-sold with 20% non-refundable deposits before they even put a shovel in the ground. And of course, they're selling through the, through the building period as well. So we really expect that to be sold out by the time it's complete. But generally speaking, usually when it comes to development deals, usually it's about two years or does it usually take longer? For us, if we can narrow the window to two years, that's good. We typically tell our investors expect three to four years. But again, it depends. Some take longer than others. Some of them are just, you know, there's more of a six to nine months period at the beginning where you're just doing a lot of things that, you know, your money's there and you're in and you got your construction on closed, but it just takes longer. Sometimes there's just a sellout period that's longer. On the ones where we can get a cap gain treatment, like the hotel or when we convert an office building into apartments, then that's more like a four-year deal because we want to convert it and do the whole redevelopment of it, which will take, say, two years. Then we want to run it, stabilize it for at least a year, if not two, and then we'd sell it you know, out at that point in time and take cap gains treatment. But on the build it and sell it like condominiums where you're, you're getting ordinary income treatment anyway, you can't really get cap gains treatment on it. 
then we're trying to get in and out of those as quickly as possible. So those are typically 24 to 30 months on those deals. Got it. Okay. And what's the main risk in development? You know, I always say this risk is proportionate to knowledge, right? If you really know what you're doing, I consider it to be almost risk-free. And by know what you're doing, I mean, you've got to have the right location. You have to really understand supply and demand. There's obviously an economy, you know, a lot of people say, well, I think the economy is going to slow down next year. That doesn't really bother us so much because most of the areas we're going into, you know, these people buying these places, they don't have any stocks. They're not, they're, you know, they've got, we're, we're in full employment. They're not going to lose their job. They can get a mortgage. Now, if the credit markets froze and we experienced 2008 again, then we say, okay, well, what's the risk there? I mean, the risk is always you can lose all your money you put into an investment deal with us. Hands down, that's the maximum risk you have. However, I think that's highly unlikely because what we would typically do in a situation like that, let's say we're building something that's 40 million. You know, we probably got at least 10 million, if not 15 million into it. You know, the, the debt on it might be, uh, you know, 65%, maybe 70%. So call it 28 million of debt on a $40 million deal with 12 million of equity. If we ran into a problem and we couldn't sell those units for the price we wanted, there's still, it's, like I said, it's supply and demand. People may not buy them, but they still need a place to live so we can lease them. So we would rent them out. And if the lender got squirrely, we would simply create a mezzanine piece, like maybe an $8 million mezzanine piece and refinance the property under more of like a long-term hold scenario. And maybe we wouldn't cash flow at 12% or anything great, but we wouldn't lose our money. We would live to fight for another day. And I personally would rather take a lower rate of return over a longer period of time than have something go to zero. So, you know, that's kind of what we look at as the downside. And I think the strength of being a syndicator is I don't need the same people. It's not a, we've never made a capital call, by the way. We've just never had to do that, fortunately. But if we did, it's not, it's not mandatory. You know, our investors don't have to come up with it. We have plenty of investors that would step in and say, oh, I'll take this mezzanine piece between the two. And, and it's just trading debt for debt, but you're in a better mm -hmm. position. And let's get this lender out of the way. We have experienced a tremendous number of crazy things that I've never even seen before in terms of what I would call massive challenges and projects. But they've usually come out as good opportunities for us. And we've made more money because of it, to be honest with you. And so of our investors, it's just how you deal with it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think when you go into a deal, understanding the risks and being not ignoring it, but coming with a with a backup plan in case something happens, I think that says a lot. And and I think a lot of maybe I don't know if a lot of but some investors are not prepared for that. So having a plan in place can really help when you actually need, you know, you need to have one, especially where we are in, in the cycle right now. I want to transition and, and talk a little bit about the process of finding accredited investors. Your company works with accredited investors only. So how do you source out accredited investors? How do you find investors? Well, it's pretty much all been by word of mouth. You know, we had the first, I would say, in 2009 was when we started buying under more of like a fund structure. And we had 11 investors in that first deal. And then when we added the second deal, three more came in. Some of the 11 contributed more to fund the next deal. 
and then, then it became 14 and then it became 19 and then it became 30. And then what I did for the first few years. Okay. So if someone's starting out, how do you do this? I took everybody I know, I have it all on a, you know, whatever email distribution list or something. And I send, let's say I have 50 people that I think, you know, meet the accredited investor criteria. I don't know if they do or they don't, but I think they do. Or a hundred people, friends and family, whatever it may be that you can get your hands around. It could be three. It doesn't really matter what you start with. The important thing is that you do it. So I would prepare a very simple packet, like say three pages. Here's the deal very simple, right? I mean, no IRRs, no crazy charts or graphs, just a very simple packet. And I'm happy to send you one if you want to see it or share it with your people, your listeners or viewers. But you know, it's just a, like, you got to think like, you know, this is a doctor. He has spent his whole entire life or she has spent her whole entire life studying, working their butts off, learning a completely different language that we don't know. And, you know, that I can't understand. And they haven't been spending their time on real estate. So for me to try and throw out fancy language like DCR and, you know, net present value and all this stuff, it'll go way past them and it doesn't make any sense. So I boil it down into just the very simple thing. And I send that or email that packet in a PDF to as many people as I can. And then I pick up the phone and I call them and I say, Hey, Bob, I just wanted to let you know, I just shot you an email. Most time you're leaving a message. I just shot you an email with a very exciting deal that I have. It's real estate. I'm not sure if you've ever considered investing in real estate, but if you're interested in double digit returns, and this is something I thought of you for, you know, open it up, take a look and give me a call right away. I'm sure it'll fill up quickly. And I would love to have you in the deal. And, you know, and then that's it. I'd leave that message on, say, as many phone numbers as I had, you know, to call. And if I get somebody live, it's the same thing. It's just you turn it into questions. And so it's a skill called prospecting. It was taught to me by a guy named Mike Ferry in my residential days. He's actually a Southern California guy also. He's one of the most effective communicators and one of the best instructors for scripts and dialogues and and, and skills that I've ever come across in my entire life. So I owe a lot to him for teaching me that skill, but that skill applies to everything, not just getting listings for houses or dates with women or men. I mean, you can prospect for anything you want, right? You just have to have the questions on the tip of your tongue and ask the right questions. And really, you're just, you're not selling somebody. There's no convincing. You're presenting them with an opportunity. So that's how I started. Now, I don't have time to do that. I mean, there's just no way. We send out an email to a thousand people on our list and, you know, we sent a $16 million deal out. It was fully funded within seven days. I mean, 16 million of equity. It was wow. actually 20 million of equity in total, but it was, you know, it was fully subscribed in, in about seven days. So I didn't call anybody. What happens is, is people know now, hey, our deals fill up pretty quickly and it's kind of reversed. And so they'll email back and reply, hey, hold two shares for me. And, and we always just, our policy is if somebody says they're interested, we'll reserve the shares for them because we know we'll be on a waiting list. And then, then it's more fielding questions. And so we're actually struggling with that right now. And partly this book that I wrote was designed to answer a lot of questions that first-time investors with us have. So I can give them that and say, here's what you should be focused on when you're looking at a real estate deal. And that's what the the book's there for. But I love the conversations on the deals. I love going through them. I like to hear if somebody has a concern about something. I because you know, 
I've already thought through it typically. I mean, it's very rare that I come across something that I don't know about a deal that I've put out by the time I put it out. But it's really interesting to hear people's reactions to it, their, their potential concerns, you know, things like that. The last thing I'd say about that is we are very careful about getting investors out that are not comfortable in. So it's first step is to try not to let anybody into your deal that would be problematic for you. And what I mean by that is someone who's an active investor or wants to be an active investor, but they're coming into your deal and they're supposed to be a passive investor. Like our investors are passive investors. You know, they're not going to come and tell me I should do this or do that or, you know, that kind of thing. That's part of the art of prospecting. It's, it's not only bringing investors, it's also screening investors and bringing the right people to your deal. You're absolutely 100% right about that. Yeah. And that's, that's been, fortunately, we've been patient and we've been good at that. And then we've had, like I said, we've had very, very good luck with all of our deals. And so if we get somebody that's a little agitating and overbearing, I mean, if it's just questions, I love it. Like I love the conversations, but you know, sometimes people can just get a little too much anxiety about it. They don't, you know, they're not used to it. They're used to seeing a statement, opening an app and seeing their account every day. Real estate doesn't move like that, right? Yeah. So, you know, if somebody's calling us a lot, you can sense, hey, this person, this might not be the best thing for you. And so we've been able to actually, you know, just float those shares to other people or we'll buy them ourselves internally. And we keep a decent amount of liquidity for that kind of thing if and when it comes up. I think, it, I think it's happened three times, to be honest with you. In, <laughs> in 2005 is when I started taking mm -hmm. on investors. I think we've literally cashed out like three investors in that amount of time. So it doesn't happen very often, but it happens. So it, Yeah. And it's, it's good that you do have the liquidity and the ability to do that. So how do you manage your relationship with investors? You know, keep the communication, the line of communication open, make sure that they're informed, whether you have a deal or you don't have a deal. What tools do you use to manage your investor relationships? There's a portal that we have now that everybody's on so they can log in and they can see what they have ownership in and how much and what they put in. It doesn't revalue the asset all the time, mm -hmm. but it at yeah. least allows them to see what it is. And it also has all of the monthly updates cataloged in there. We send a monthly update, either monthly or quarterly on every deal. Some of them are quarterly, some of them are monthly. It just depends on the deal and what it needs. You know, if not much is going to change quarter to quarter, we don't, you know, we send it quarterly, but we operate with hundred percent transparency. So anything somebody wants to see, we'll get them financial statements, contractor invoices, you know, it doesn't matter. It's all open book for whatever anybody wants to see. We don't typically push all that information on people, but we send enough information so that people don't typically ever call and ask us for anything. So I think we've, we've struck the right balance between you know, not inundating their inbox because our open rate is still really good on the emails we send out in terms of updates, but we're not getting any questions back. I mean, literally I'll send out, I think in one entity, we send out over a half a million dollars a month pro rata to that particular group. And I don't think I've had a question or a response or a reply or anything other than like an occasional great job, keep it up, mm -hmm. you know, in 10 years. To me, that means we're kind of doing that part of it right. I'll tell you the trickiest part is we, we go through periods where we don't have enough deals. 
we don't have anything out. Like right now, we just put out an offering. It was only 6.2 million of equity and it was filled in 48 hours. And so there's, there's still people like, hey, can you hold two shares coming in? I'm like, I'm sorry, you know, that one's gone. And we do have a good pipeline of four or five more coming. But then the problem becomes, well, we don't want to get overcommitted, right? Because if all of a sudden we, we put out $100 million worth of equity needed for, for deals, you know, that last one, we want to make sure we have it. We don't want to ever show up at the table and not have it. We do have a $10 million bridge facility that can bridge gaps, but we don't like to use it because it's expensive. You know, we've never been short at the closing table. That's mm-hmm. usually the developer's primary concern is how do I know you guys are going to show up with the money? Fortunately, now I can give them a list of 10 people to call that we have active deals going with where we have shown up with the money. So that helps. But that's the biggest challenge is kind of weighing how much you have of investor capital to work with and how many deals you have. We've, we've really been restricted on the deal side. So recently I brought somebody on to really scour the, the, the United States and find any and every opportunity. And now we have a much larger pipeline of deals coming through that we're really excited about. I think we're really cherry picking the best markets and the best opportunities and, and then, you know, being, getting our investors into the, the deals that we feel have the absolute best chance to hit good, solid double digit returns. All right. All right. Great. Well, John, thank you so much for, for being on the show. We've reached to the last part, which is the lightning round questions. Are you ready? I'll try. I'll try. <laughs> All right. So what's your favorite hobby? Kite surfing. That one's easy. That's a simple one. I'm absolutely addicted to kite surfing. Kite surfing. Oh, very yeah. cool. How long have you been doing that? About two years now. Yeah, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. It's hard to get away to do it, but when you go, it's just it's crazy. It's so much fun. All right. What's the uh, one thing that people don't know about you? Let's see. Well, there's probably a lot of things, but there's a reason they don't know them. So I'm not sure. Feel if I free to share. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I pretty much wear it on my sleeve usually. So people usually know, you know, what's going on in my world, I would think. But I have doubt to think about that one. I, right. that. I needed that one farther in advance. All right. So what do you wish you had known when you started out? You know, I mean, there was no internet when I started out. You know, there was no email. It's, it, mm-hmm. I, you didn't even really have a cell phone. I mean, real estate agents were like the first ones to get cell phones. And so I used to have, uh, you know, what I would have liked to have had, to be perfectly honest with you, is this book called Principles of Real Estate Syndication written by Sam Freshman. And I think it was written at the time. I just didn't, I found it like eight years ago and I was like, this guy has basically described everything I figured out. And I thought I figured it all out on my own and by like my mentor and copying other people and piecing it together. But had I had that book early on, there's just so much knowledge in that book. It's like a textbook, so it's terrible to read, but it is a pretty good roadmap for what what it is that we do. Mm -hmm. All right. What's your number one advice to real estate investors who want to scale their business? I mean, I think it's really, really tough to understand, but you really don't need to be in a hurry. Somebody once told me that, you know, if you look at an overnight success, you can usually look backwards and see that it took about 20 years to get there. 
And, and then, you know, another mentor of mine who I had as a coach for a while used to say, everybody under, overestimates what they can accomplish in a year and underestimates what they can get done in a decade. And as I look back on my business and life plan from 10 years ago, and I look at it today, I'm like blown away. I mean, I've, I'm three X right now net worth what I ever imagined I would be as my ultimate goal for my whole life. So, you know, it, it's just, it's tough. I, I kind of feel like you set very specific incremental goals on a five-year time frame. And it was Tony Robbins, who was my mentor, who talked about the, the decade versus the year. And then it was also Tim Ferriss. So he said, so he got me thinking a few years ago on this concept of, you know, I got this five-year life plan. He's like, well, why take five years? You know, why not think about that fifth year and how you do that next year? Just that shift in thinking in my brain caused me to do things that I was like, well, yeah, now why don't I just hire people? to handle all this stuff and you know that'll allow me to do this this and this and it's just you know like light speed I mean for me I don't going backwards I don't think I benefit a lot by anything different because I just needed to plot along and I need to learn the lessons and I need to go through it and I think that's what experience is right so so for me I don't think anything would have helped me by going that much faster I've been very very fortunate with the people that have helped me out and, and the, the stuff I've learned. But I would say for anybody, especially starting out, my number one rule is don't work for the money, work to learn something. I always do deals, I always, that's why we never, we don't do the same deal twice. I always am learning about stuff, everything's different. So that's what I tell the, now my kids actually. <laughs> All right, that's a great advice. So John, where can people find you and how can they get the package that you talked about earlier that they can share with investors? Yeah, so um, you could just shoot an email to ir at promanas.com. So investor relations is just ir at promanas, which is promanas. It was sort of this acronym for professional management acquisitions and syndication, but it's just promanas rhymes with bananas. Obviously, you could get the book for like five bucks or whatever it is, 10 bucks on Amazon. It's called Do the Work Once, Get Paid Forever. All our contact info's in there. I think that's valuable for investors, accredited investors and sponsors as well to kind of understand where someone's focus should be. It really shouldn't be on the deal itself. I mean, I'll give you the answer. It should be on the person who's bringing you the deal because, you know, what's their track record? What do they have in the game? What, you know, what happens if it goes bad? Are they going to stay attached to it or not? Literally almost everybody I know is invested with me. So the pressure's on me. I mean, you know, I, I can't show up at Thanksgiving dinner or something. If I've lost somebody's money, it would be terrible. And I'd like to think they understand the risks of all of this. But I know for a fact that a lot of people that invest with us just, you know, they heard about it from someone else and they go, well, they did good. And so you'll do good. And, you know, anyway. All right. Perfect. Well, John, thank you so much for your time again. I really appreciate it. Oh, no, I really appreciate having me on the show. Thanks a lot, Ellie.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.